This is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Dender and shortly. And of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. But first up, in a week where domestic football history is being made, we'll preview the men's A-League finals and reflect on the historic double of the Sydney FC women's side who conquered the precocious Western United to win the Premier's Plate and Championship for the second time. Our first guest will take us behind the curtain of a genuine piece of Australasian football iconography. Long thought lost to the mists of time in the way of the Jules Rimet trophy for 69 years the Anzac Soccer Ashes trophy lay in a suburban garage only to be discovered in mint condition and like the Australia Cup before it saved from the trash heap and restored to its rightful position hopefully both of these are a metaphor for the game in this country we'll discuss just how it was found and what its rediscovery means with Australian football historian Trevor Thompson then in a week sprinkled with the magic dust of coronation fairy tales one of the game's true royal families is dragging itself off the canvas to what once looked like at various stages of the season an unlikely spot in Europe I speak of none other than Liverpool who have finally righted the ship and are on course to at the very least take some part amongst the leading European clubs next season and of course we will wrap it up with World Cup Corner Edge am I indulging myself too much I think with you and uh, and Derek um, talking about Arsenal um, every week that I can refer to Liverpool as football royalty can't I? Oh, you certainly can, Rob. But how about those Sydney FC women? We've got to, off the top of the show, just give them a massive shout out. Mm-hmm. Huge congratulations for winning the double. 9,700 people at Combank Stadium in Parramatta. Um, congratulations to Madison Haley, who scored a double. But I just want to be a big shout out to Rachel Lowe, who I thought was one of the best players on the field. Uh, well done, Rachel. She had... Um, some big illnesses to overcome over the last uh, couple of years and uh, she got to the top of the pile. And Sydney FC women, Rob, they've got the double. That, in my book, says they are the best of the last five or six years and well done to them. Um, And a great uh, event, even though it was Western United's home match. Exactly. And that, uh, I'm going to expand on that a little bit in uh, stoppage time later on in the week. But, uh, um, you know, as, as much as they uh, deserve to win on the day and throughout the course of the season, that's not the way sport works. They lost their opportunity for a home grand final when they lost to Western United in uh, in week one of the finals and, uh, and they shouldn't have been playing there. I'm not saying that Sydney FC women's side wouldn't have beaten Western United if it was played in Melbourne, but they certainly would have had a far harder time at it. And um, yes, uh, they do win, but for me, Derek, um, when uh, the um, the jeopardy of of the earned home uh, grand final is lost, they win with an asterisk. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that argument's just gonna gonna rumble on, uh, isn't it? But um, <clears throat> obviously, a disappointing result for my Western United. Would like to have seen them pick up um, the silverware, but I can only say congratulations. It was a pretty 
uh, comprehensive victory and uh, congratulations mm-hmm. to Sydney. Yeah, a couple of other things to, uh, to touch on out of that match. Uh, just going back over Sydney FC's record, six grand finals on the trot, four championships all up, three straight premierships. Uh, Michael, probably not too much to say that they are one of the, it's one of the great Australian sporting years, really. Uh, you also touched on the crowd there, 9,519 at Parramatta. That's a record for the competition. Uh, and the OPL could point to that as justification of, a, of its grand final decision if they wanted to. Um, I'm sure they might. Um, although a fair chunk of those, what percentage of those were, were given away? Uh, Danny Townsend's been on on record saying that free tickets don't provide the uh, the value uh, that you know they don't they don't put value on the ticket basically. Uh, and then you know a fair fair degree of them were given away for free. So yeah, interesting. Um, everything everything comes with a, a caveat to be unpacked uh, at this time. It seems with the A leagues. It certainly does, Willem, but uh, congratulations to everybody who went to the event. Uh, whether you had a free ticket or not, uh, you had to be motivated to go to the event. And I understand there was a great activation with local football clubs and the Liberty A-League uh, pass that has been promoted heavily in New South Wales. So, yeah, I'm um, I'm very thankful that they all turned out and, uh, you know, for Sydney FC, who were the best team, even if it was in Melbourne at Western United's uh, home deck, I think that uh, Sydney FC would have been too good. I did predict a bit of an avalanche and that's the way it turned out, Willem. But um, yeah, lots to unpack in terms of the decision to host the grand final in Sydney. We've talked a lot about that, but I don't want that to be overshadowing the performance of Sydney FC's women who are winners of the double, the Premier's Plate and the Championship. Well done. And a little special performance from Madison Haley and Rachel Lowe, I thought was worthy of recognition. Yeah, Madison Haley, the uh, the big stage in the blood, as we said last week. To the men's, the Mariners have joined Melbourne City in the A-League semifinals after clinching second spot with an emphatic 4-1 win over Adelaide on Friday. That leaves the Reds to host Wellington in an elimination final this week, while Western Sydney will meet Sydney FC in the first finals derby. Uh, but the story out of this, Rob, I think is Adelaide, 12 games unbeaten uh, through the back end of the, the season. But from there, they've gone on to lose 1-0 to Western United, draw 4-all, and then lose 4-1. Uh, that's the second time this season they've shipped four to the Mariners, who who well and truly have their measure, and they could well, uh, could well meet them uh, again. So yeah, I think Adelaide uh, right in the mix, but... Such great momentum, twelve unbeaten. Yeah, you know it, um, it's an incredible run that they've had so far, and uh, and as you say, they they are right in the mix, and probably not the time of the uh, season that you want to lose that momentum. But they look, they've, they've made their run. They they missed that second spot in the in the double chance uh, automatic week off. Um, I, I still back them to go deep in this competition. We talked to Carl Viet uh, a couple of weeks ago. He really, for me, does seem to have uh, um, their. Um, their squad, the whole mentality around that team in just the right place. And um, and the fact that they're playing a home final is, is going to um, uh, be a, a big advantage for them. So I, I predict them as the wild card um, throughout the course of the finals. And Edge, I want to throw to you for a word on MacArthur. Uh, they won the Australian Cup in October. Looked the goods. Looked really good. Uh, Dwight York then left sort of mid-year, calling them a bunch of amateurs. From there, they went on to manage nine points from their last 17, finished stone-cold motherless. And would you believe Milos Segovsky this week, two-year deal? Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Uh, a lot of people in the football community really critical of MacArthur and their leadership and just how they're travelling. Um, really poor crowd numbers, the whole Dwight York experiment that was a strange decision considering how they were travelling. And yeah, I think the spotlight is well and truly on them in the off-season to see what can be generated. Um, I'm not sure financially that they're travelling that well for obvious reasons. You can't get uh, only a couple of thousand people at your games and expect to uh, 
the cash register to be to be uh, chinky Nova. So yeah, lots of questions about Macarthur, and uh, not only questions about Macarthur and their leadership and how they're travelling, but also. Uh, it obviously reflects on the decision to put him in the competition in the first place. Yeah, the uh, the last franchise you you might think we might look back in time and think it was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a dinosauric decision, if you like. Let's head to Scotland. Celtic are going to contest a first Scottish Cup final under Ange Postecoglou after defeating Rangers one nil in Sunday's semi final at Hampton Park. Jota's first half header was enough to split the sides and knock out holders Rangers, who won when the sides met at this stage last season. Celtic will meet Inverness Caledonian Thistle currently. Fifth in the second division uh, in the final on June 3. Derek, they can also wrap up their second consecutive league title should they beat Hearts uh, next Sunday evening. Before I throw to you, I'll, I'll leave you with a line from Tom English in the BBC. The treble is very much on. A place in the Celtic Park Pantheon is within touching distance. For Rangers, the view from the doldrums is dark. Yes, the uh, chasm between uh, Celtic and Rangers seems to have increased uh, significantly under Ange Postacoglu and Rangers have have not won any of the last five games. Celtic have won four, and there was a draw in there as well. So, you know, the, the, you know, Rangers may have squashed all in front of them outside of Celtic, but really, it's in these uh, big games where um, where where it really matters. There's a lot to do at Rangers at the moment. They're desperately missing strike power. Um, Celtic have got a range of options up front. Uh, to score goals from the the Japanese um, contingent, Jota, as you mentioned, not the only Jota. I'm sure we'll talk about in the in the show as, as we go. Um, but but Morelos um, really looking out of sorts, and Kent uh, leaving on a free transfer at the end of the season doesn't seem that interested. So yeah, the season finished for Rangers and uh, for Ferranci. Yeah, look, you know you've got to. You can only beat what's put in front of you, of course. Uh, and look, I think this would be an impressive upgrade to his CV with a with a treble on there, and his stock only only rises. While on Scotland, the championship, their second division, comes down to its final match day. Dundee lead Queen Park, Queens Park by two points, and they're going to play each other for automatic promotion and edge. Uh, Dundee, led by good friend of the show Gary Bowyer, so good luck to our man and his side this weekend. Yeah, absolutely, Gary Bowyer. Yeah, um, let's hope he uh, gets the result he needs, and um, that's a great story, isn't it, Willem? We loved uh, our chats with Gary Bowyer. We should get him on again. Be good to see Ange go up against Gary next season. It would be would be fantastic, wouldn't it? <laughs> to Italy, Napoli have been forced to wait to celebrate their drought-breaking Serie A title after a one-all draw with Salernitana, uh, needing just three points from their last seven games. Jeez, they really have bruised it in. Uh, they had led until the 84th minute. Stadium Diego Armando Maradona was uh, was brimming down there. Uh, but having waited 33 years, uh, I guess I can wait a touch longer. The next chance to seal the deal is against Udinese on Friday. And to Germany, Bayern Munich are back on top of the Bundesliga. They had a tuna win over Hertha. The door had been opened. Uh, Derek, I'll come to you here after Dortmund uh, drew with with lowly Bochum and they were denied uh, what could only be called a, a stonewall penalty on, on Daniel Marlin, the Dutchman, uh, and then had a late goal ruled out for offside. They were they were very much aggrieved at, at that draw. Yeah, they we kind of put the box-to-box mockers on uh, Dortmund because I called them my team of the week last week and was crowing, uh, both Edge and I were crowing at the idea of a first league title for them since Klopp's team in uh, 2012. But yeah, you know, st- slipping up Arsenal style against uh, a relegation lowly threatened team um, 
wasn't the the best thing to do, and you just felt as soon as that result went in that Bayern, despite this kind of poor season that they're having so far, were going to capitalise and. A lot of relief for Thomas Tuchel. I think he's only been in for seven games and he'd won only three, I think. So that means he's back to 50%. And obviously that decision to jettison Nagelsmann right in the middle of the season to bring in Tuchel wasn't looking a smart one as they crashed out the Champions League as well. But the Bavarians will feel like they are back where they could be. But with only a few points in it, you know, let's keep an eye on that one until the end of the season. Yeah, five to play. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Courtney Nevin and Remy Seamson both in the thick of it for Leicester Edge as they defeated Liverpool 4-0. Three assists between them, if you don't mind, and playing big roles as they look uh, to avoid relegation. They were last. They look gone. They're now up to 10th. Yeah, they're going all right, aren't they? And uh, good to see the Matilda's uh, players uh, playing a role in um, giving them some hope, Willem. Not often things don't go Sam Kerr's way when she's with Chelsea, but they're out of the Women's Champions League. Two one losers to Bayern Munich across uh, the two legs on aggregate. Arsenal and Wolfsburg still to be sorted out as we record. Well done to Mass Luongo and Cam Burgess. They've sealed promotion to the championship with Ipswich. Mass on the score sheet in a 6-0 win. Uh, they're singing his praises big time. So great to see him find uh, some consistency with his form and his fitness. And the dream remains alive for Jackson Irvine and St. Pauli. Another win has them within six points of that crucial playoff spot with four to play. And just to close, Rob, Socceroos legends central, Vince Greller and, and Marco Bresciano, two of our, our very, very best, uh, have won Serie D in their, in their first season at the helm of Catania. They were formerly a, a top flight side. They crashed out. They were dissolved. Uh, they've been revived under the, the ownership of Ross Poligra, an Adelaide building magnate who was sort of flirting with getting involved with, with Adelaide United for a little bit there. Uh, Grella, CEO and the vice president, and now back into the professional ranks. Yeah, that's another one I'm going to expand upon a little bit in stoppage time. So so no severed pig's head for Vinnie Grella and uh, Marco Bresciano. So just a fantastic story I saw on the 10 Network. Um, our good friend uh, Michael Saponi was over there celebrating with the boys uh, on the pitch after after the result that secured the uh, the uh, the promotion for, for Catania. And uh, it uh, it was just an amazing sight to, to behold the, the once empty stadiums at the depths of uh, their, their worst. Um, performances were absolutely jam-packed and Edge would have absolutely loved it. There were flares and fireworks and smoke and all sorts of things going on. And um, and even I, it, my hard-hearted um, nanny state non-flare guy heart um, was pleased to see it. That's good, Rob. I'm glad you acknowledge the culture and tradition that happens in some parts of the world and um, nothing like a, a piping hot flare um, to accentuate the atmosphere. Don't go too hard, Edge. I mean, I wasn't saying nothing like a piping odd flair, but the the colour. Yeah, exactly. Smoke and colour and atmosphere. And yeah, it's a pretty good story that way. Looking forward to your expansion Mm. in stoppage time later on. So if you're listening to our regular show, make sure you listen to stoppage time where Rob will give us some more colour and descriptions of the piping hot flares. God, Edge. All right, Willem, have you got any more for us or is that all you done? Well done, buddy. Oh, well. Okay, we'll wrap it up then. Okay, we'll stick around after the break before we um, we uh, talk to our friend James Pierce about the uh, Liverpool resurgence. Um, there's nothing like a story of something that um, you thought was never going to happen actually happening and hearing the backstory to it. Uh, it was a story that, 
for good reason, cut through to, to lots of the mainstream media when the uh, uh, the Anzac Ashes Trophy was found. Uh, we're really looking forward to chatting. Well, Edge and Willem are going to chat to Trevor Thompson after the break and you know, talk a little more about in detail about what the trophy was or is, uh, what it means, um, where it came from, its genuine heritage um, with our World War One uh, diggers and, and of course, our, uh, our neighbours, our good friends uh, across the ditch, the Kiwis. So stick around. That's going to be a great chat. Uh, with uh, Australian football historian Trevor Thompson after the break on Box to Box. Hey, don't let the flu ruin your plans this year. Get in early and help yourself. Help protect yourself with the flu immunisation available now. Edge, where's it available at? Oh, Chemist Warehouse and absolutely get down there. I've done it. I'm bulletproof. I'm like Superman. I'm about to head back overseas again and, and I'm ready to go, Rob. You look like you're Superman, mate. You just All you need is a cape just to finish the job. It's the quadrivalent vaccine. It helps protect against four strains of influenza. However, it can take several weeks to take full effect. Book your appointment now because it takes a community to build immunity. It's quick, convenient and affordable. Plus, you don't need to bring in a script, do you, Will? No, you don't. No, they're, uh, they're handy chemist warehouse. This time of year, Rob, you, you don't think you need them until you need them you you make your plans and then you get a sniffle or you you heaven forbid you might get the flu if you're not if you're not jabbed up so no make sure you uh you get in there how do you think i look in a superman suit rob Mate, I think you'd be rippling with that six-pack of yours. You'd be fantastic, mate. The Man of Steel. No Krypton would get you and no flu would get you either. The prescription and administration, they're provided in store by qualified health professionals this year. The quadrivalent strain is just $19.99 at Chemist Warehouse. Build immunity and book your flu immunisation today at chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Ashes Trophy grew to represent Australian football's tendency to forget itself, according to historian Ian Sison. Its recent discovery in a suburban garage provides a great opportunity for the game to reconnect with its past and for us to welcome back the man who, alongside Sison, has led the charge for its recovery and recognition. Trevor Thompson, football historian and author of Burning Ambition, welcome back to Box to Box. Great to be here and great to be talking about uh, what I think is a really significant achievement in retrieving this trophy, which as you say, has been gone for so long. No, we, we certainly agree. A momentous week, a momentous fortnight, really. So firstly, before we, we pick through the threads of, of what this means for the game, looking back and looking forwards, congratulations to both yourself and Ian for the work you've done for the game. Um, can you just take us inside when the trophy was presented to you? It looked like you were conducting a, a sit-down interview of some form before it was sort of whipped out of the bag and, and thrown onto the table. It, it looked like a game show, and it uh, felt a little bit like that. And um, I was one of the guys who uh, won the prize um, Chris Corelli from uh, Football Australia uh, told me that he wanted to record some material with a view to um, you know, generating a bit of content for the, the, the Anzac Day long weekend, if I can put it that way. I suppose it wasn't really a long weekend, but you know what I mean. Um, and uh, we came and he came with a camera and we chatted a bit and he put this bag on the table and on opening the bag, of course, I find the, this uh, incredible find of uh, of the trophy that has been missing since at least uh, well sometime after 1954 we can't really put a date on it but we never saw it in public after 54 so yeah that took my breath away because uh, you know it's such a treasure and uh, i first started uh, uh, making inquiries about what might have happened to it i reckon about um around the turn of a century a year or two either side of 2000 
when I started making some inquiries as to where it might be. So, yeah, after all this time, it's uh, it's wonderful to see it holding my hands. And it was found within the uh, the possession of former Australian Soccer Federation Association uh, Chair Sydney Story. So could you please take us inside his his long history and, and contribution to the game and, and how that ties in with your, your sort of working theory as to why it might have been tucked away? Yeah, look, Sid Story's a really interesting character whose involvement with football goes back to um, all of the period after the First World War and continuously up to his death in 1966. He's, he's an amazing character for having been involved for that long. In his early days, he was part of the, a kind of uh, more adventurous ginger group getting international football happening at all. He invented or was one of the people who invented a company to raise the capital to pay for the Chinese visit to Australia in 1923 very controversial move at the time. Um, it yielded a profit. The profits were uh, you know, repatriated to those people who joined the fund to, uh, to pay for the Chinese tour. So he's part of a very innovative group uh, in the 1920s. By the time he gets to the 1950s, though, he's kind of part of the problem. You know, we've got this big revolution happening in Australian soccer, which is uh, you know all of the new clubs, the federations, the players, that came with the post-war uh, waves of immigration. And he was really one of the, well, the leader of the, of the opposition, if you like, to having uh, the new waves taking over a, a kind of control or even a big influence in the Australian game. And we've just commemorated uh, Anzac Day and, and we continue to see the AFL and the NRL strengthen their connection to our war history while uh, football association football seemingly makes little attempt. There was a, a dalliance maybe five or so years ago, but this year no match uh, professionally played on, on Anzac Day. But this discovery really does bring the link between the code and, and that war history into focus, does it not? Well, it can do. It depends on how we play it, you know. It's uh, the the finding of the trophy uh, and the trophy itself, even in, in its heyday, is sort of tangentially linked with uh, with Anzac Day, but nothing that's all that direct. Uh, you know, sure, the, uh, the, the, the Razor case came back from Gallipoli, uh, with a with a football official, it was incorporated into the trophy when the idea was floated um, by um, Harry Mayer, the, uh, the the manager of the New Zealand team, um, and incorporated in it. But you know, it's it's there's nothing specifically about that particular uh, day that links it to the uh, to the the Ashes Trophy. Although there is the link, of course, because there, were, there, there are men on the field. Who, who served during the First World War. Uh, and, you know, it's very fresh in the memory, of course, for everybody, whether they're involved in the game or not, that this is these are Anzacs. These are Australians and New Zealanders um, being together. Uh, but in this uh, competition in the soccer world, yeah, for me, it's a really interesting kind of trophy because it commemorates not so much the contest between the two countries, but the solidarity between the two countries. It's a, it's a it's a, it's a symbol of friendship rather than opposition. I think there's probably not that many uh, sporting trophies that can be seen in that light. Trevor, can you take us back to 1923? I'd love your insight into um, what you think happened because in modern football, 
opposition teams don't really spend any time together. You know, they, they're busting into stadiums, they have recovery, pre-match uh, warm-ups, all that sort of stuff. But I imagine the Australian captain, Alex Geard, and New Zealand captain, George Campbell, had an opportunity to be together. They're probably having a, I don't know whether it was pre-match or post-match. If it was post-match, they're probably having a glass of whiskey or wine and they're smoking some cigars. And can you take us back into what, the conversation might have been like because it was a very insightful decision what they decided to do to create um, some sort of legacy for this uh, this relationship between Australia and New Zealand. What do you think happened and what do you think the discussion would have been? Well, the far, as far as I'm aware, the discussion is between the officials from Australia and New Zealand. Harry Mayer is a key factor here, the New Zealand manager. Harry Mayer was a jeweller and a, a maker of trophies and medals uh, and continued doing that. The, the company called uh, 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 Mayer & Keen is a well-known outfit in New Zealand. There's all sorts of uh, medals and trophies that were created, some of which are in museums in New Zealand. Um, he was uh, very well known in that, in that uh, milieu. So you know, that's what he thinks about a lot anyway. He thought the events were significant enough to justify an ongoing uh, memorial in the form of a trophy. He made the suggestion, everybody got behind the idea, the, uh, the cigar ash uh, is obviously uh, a, a direct kind of reference to the original ashes, the cricket ashes of the, of the 19th century, and just bringing up that notion of ashes, which became by then, of course, a, quite a, a popular term to use about any kind of really strong sporting contest. Um, so that's where they kind of came from. As for what happened to the trophy, it didn't really establish itself until the next series of matches. It was suggested in 1923, but the football's already kind of yeah, done and dusted by then. It was after the, uh, the, the Brisbane match. Uh, Brisbane was the first of the home matches on the three test series uh, in, in Australia. Um, as for the kind of relations they had, they would have spent a lot of time with each other, uh, and it's clear that they did. Uh, it's interesting as well, though, that George Campbell was, was not all that popular a character with the Australians. They thought he was cocky and arrogant, and uh, they didn't like him. And there's plenty of uh, evidence to suggest that he wasn't, while he was a hero for the, the New Zealand squad, the Aussies didn't like him. Um, but, you know, captains of teams, you know, they've got to spend time to each other, with each other. Uh, I think they probably got on okay, Alec Gibbon and uh, George Campbell. But, um, yeah, tours in those days, there's no case of fly in, fly out kind of international matches. You go and play an international match, the likelihood is in Australia, because it's so far to travel, even across the Tasman, you're likely to spend a couple of weeks in each other's company quite a lot. And every town, every city where that's staging a game is putting on a bit of evening entertainment or maybe a day trip or a bit of something, which means the players will be together a lot. So it's a different kind of... Uh, uh, contest environment altogether. Thank you so much, not only for joining us, but for your for your 20-year pursuit on, on behalf of the game. I hope you found a, a great level of satisfaction in the past couple of weeks. And let's make sure that our next 100 years are, are treated with greater care than the previous. Good to talk to you. 
historian Trevor Thompson there. Stick around on the other side of the break. The Premier League comes back into focus with Rob, Derek and James Pearce. They are. And I know Derek buys Hoyt Spices. Did you like that little spice mix I talked about last week, Derek? It's the winter, the autumn spice mix. I, I did, Rob. And I was fondling Hoyt's product again this weekend. I... Uh, bought a top-up from my Dutch cinnamon, and that was a Hoyt's uh, packet. And the great thing was I was able just to refill my original cinnamon glass jar. And then as a result, I made a fabulous Sri Lankan chicken curry with all the usual Hoyt's ingredients. It was very nice. Yeah, that is outstanding. And the Sri Lankan curries, they're often sort of ignored uh, by the, uh, the, the the sort of the non-hardcore curry aficionado in favour of the Indian and the Thai type of curries. But these Sri Lankan curries, they are outstanding. And as I've been saying for years now, refill your empty spice jars with Hoyt's Value Packs. That is what Derek did. And you will be happy if you do it at Hoyt's. Coles, Woolworths, all good independent supermarkets. That's where they're available. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And uh, as I mentioned earlier on in the show, I've uh, had to uh, quietly sit by and listen to Derek and Michael talk about Arsenal throughout the course of the season as uh, Liverpool's uh, season seemed to go from bad to worse. And you know, back in early February when they lost 3-0 to Wolves, uh, they were 10th on the ladder, 29 points. Uh, and there were serious concerns over where they'd finish by the end of the season. They were staring down the barrel of what looked to be their worst finish in Premier League history, which was 52 points in the 2011-12 season when they finished 8th under Kenny Dalglish. But fast forward three months and on 56 points already, the barrel they're now staring at is one which draws balls from a European pot. James Pearce, uh, is that a fair... Uh, assessment from The Athletic. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, we're doing really good. Well, I'm doing better. Uh, uh, the uh, the fellow that you're watching on the other screen there with his two Arsenal shirts behind his shoulders probably not doing as well as I am right now, but that's another story. <laughs> but, mate, um, it's um, look, it is, uh, I guess... It to be expected. I mean, we lo- we saw Sadio Mane leave. Um, there were there were a lot of injuries. So, uh, yeah. There was the obviously every club in the world had to deal with the World Cup disruption, but uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 finding of their feet for the likes of Darwin Nunes and then subsequently Cody Gakpo, uh, it was always going to take some time. Mo Salah lost a little bit of his touch as well, and the midfield was was really wanting. But uh, uh, Jurgen Klopp, I mean, there were even murmurs of uh, of him, um, you know, being uh, shown the door, but. But uh, that's all turned around now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, it's it's certainly been a more problematic season than than anyone could have possibly envisaged. Really, I think you you touched upon there some of the the key factors. I think you know no no Premier League team has has lost as many days to injury as as Liverpool have. You know, so many so many you know big big names stuck on the sidelines for significant periods, and you know Sunday's game against Tottenham provided a reminder of that when you see. Know, the brilliance of Luis Diaz scoring that second goal and you know how Liverpool have missed him for for six months and yeah they probably you know, I think they they probably overestimated what was left in the tank for this squad I think probably um you know kind of underestimated just how much that 63 game season uh, last season had, t- had taken a toll I think I think mentally as as well as as well as physically and um yeah and there's been I think especially as well for a group that have been used to 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 delivering week after week after week 
um, you know, trying to deal with so many punishing setbacks just absolutely has sapped morale and, and belief at, um, at stages of the season. But yeah, I think even despite all that, the, you know, the vast majority of Liverpool fans always remained fully behind Klopp. Certainly the owners were absolutely 100% unwavering in terms of their their support for him. You know, they, they, they don't, there was never any discussion about his future. Um, and the important thing for Liverpool is, you know, there has been a reaction, you know, to it. It looks like it's probably too little too late in terms of the race for the top four. But yeah, four straight wins have, have really lifted the mood. And James, uh, you know, anybody who follows football closely and Liverpool specifically will know that uh, um, that you are far from an apologist for the Reds. Uh, in fact, um, you, you did butt heads with Klopp uh, um, earlier in the season when he objected to uh, to some of your commentary around the game. Uh, uh, even the week just gone, he's, um, he's had a blow up uh, with um, the referee uh, um, suggesting that he doesn't like him and, uh, and, and sort of wax lyrical after the game. Uh, remembering very clearly some points for a guy who's very, very busy. He remembers things. Um, I don't wouldn't want to get on his wrong side, mate. Um, but um, <laughs> but but how do you think, as a as a dispassionate observer, um, he has managed this whole process um, with those couple of uh, uh, reminiscences in mind? Yeah, I think um, I think he's he's found it incredibly difficult. In, in terms of the, the level of the drop-off and, and dealing, which has been with with what has undoubtedly been the kind of most challenging period of his of his Anfield reign. Because of course, you know, you go back two years and yes, you know, there was a there was a difficult period then. But I think it was a lot more difficult it was a lot easier to explain then because Liverpool had a, a centre back crisis where, you know, all of their senior centre backs suffered season ending injuries and 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 then you know playing midfielders as centre backs then kind of like you know destroyed the balance of the team and I think this time around it, it's the problems have been more widespread and and yeah he's you know he's he's an emotional guy we see that on the touchline and and sometimes it it crosses it crosses the line um, but yeah I think I think in terms of what happened on on Sunday at Anfield I think you know, he was he was wrong to to react the way he did to that to that winning goal you know you celebrate the moment with your staff with your players rather than race to to confront a fourth official and celebrate in his face like that. I mean, you know, to be fair to him after the game, I was in his press conference and he held his hands up and said, you know, it was, you know, it, you know, I, I shouldn't have done it. Um, you know, I know I've got to be a role model, but unfortunately I'm a human being first and emotions were running high. Um, you know, there was the slight comedy factor of him pulling his hamstring in, in doing what he did. And he, he described the yellow card and the, and the, and the injury he picked up as fair punishment for, for unacceptable behaviour, um, but of course, as as you referenced there, his his comments about Paul Tierney, the referee, I think, um, are highly likely to lead to an FA charge and, and a punishment. Especially, you know, he, he obviously I think he was fined thirty thousand pound earlier on in the season after his red card against Manchester City, um, because you know you can you can criticise decisions, but when you when you go down the road of suggesting a certain referee has got a problem with your with your club. Then um, yeah, that usually results in, in in action being taken. Can we not get too carried away here? I mean, they they just beat Tottenham. Uh, Tottenham are arguably the most calamitous team in the, in the division at the moment, and they had to do it with a very uh, last minute goal and a few decisions uh, going the way going their way. Um, or leaving all of that aside, I mean, is this a? Do you see this as genuine 
sort of turn around in fortunes and Liverpool just steadily progressing back to where they should be? Or do you also think that they've taken advantage of a few punch-drunk sides and that's sort of allowed them to sort of build a bit of confidence there, but not necessarily, um, but there's still a lot of work to do. Oh, 100% still a lot of work to do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, I don't I don't think any Liverpool fan should be getting carried away. I don't really know anyone who is on the back of those four straight wins because there's been plenty of holes you could pick in the performances. It's not, it's not like a switch has been flicked and suddenly this is Liverpool back to their, you know, swaggering, dominant, best sweeping opponents aside and Sunday was an example of that it was you know it was like the best and the worst of Liverpool this season all in in one afternoon I mean for 15-20 minutes absolutely rampant the pace the, the movement the incision you know blowing Spurs away and then you know they the, the reality is that this season they've lost that ability to control and, and manage games as, as they were so good at for so long because they're too open when they lose possession, and and Tottenham were absolutely able to pick them off on the on the counter attack. So um, yeah, I think I think it's more a case of just trying to get a bit of positivity going into the summer, because it's it's going to be a huge transfer window for Liverpool. Everyone knows that they probably need to go and sign four or five players this this summer. Um, so I, I don't think it was it was realistic to expect that they were going to suddenly just clip back into gear when there's been so much wrong for so much of this season. But I think I think the one major positive has been a, a bit of a switch in mentality in recent weeks in terms of how they've handled setbacks. Because, you know, I, I think back to the Arsenal game, really, when they went 2-0 down, fighting back in the way they did to get a draw, should have won that game. Um, you know, even, even against Nottingham Forest at Anfield, you know, sloppy equalisers, they conceded twice. But each time they were back in front within five minutes. You know, at West Ham last week, they go behind within six minutes. Gagpo's fired them level. And he, again on Sunday, you know, rather than feeling sorry for themselves when Richarlison uh, scores that dramatic late equaliser, they go straight down the other end and, and, and Jota pops up with, you know, a, a moment that anyone there will, will never forget, despite, you know, this being a miserable season. There has been some some crazy memories along the way not least that that demolition in Manchester United so um yeah a bit of positivity but I think yeah you're right there has to be the caveat that that um there's still a hell of a lot of work that needs to be done and I think I think Klopp knows that if I could list a couple of players who have formed the backbone of the team in recent years so obviously Van Dijk, Henderson, Salah um by anyone's observation the level from them three in particular as dropped off from, say, two to three years ago. Um, do you think that it's up to Klopp to work out how to reinvigorate these players? And do you think that he can reinvigorate these players? Um, or do you think it's a case of Klopp needing to look at look past these players and go, yes, they'll still um, sort of serve a role and a big role in the squad, but ultimately that era may now be moving into the distance and it's now about what the next triumvirate might be in the spine of the team. Yeah, well, I think I think at the minute, Liverpool are kind of caught between one team and another because Klopp built one kind of iconic team, really, that will be remembered by Liverpool fans forever and the team that, that won the Premier League and won the Champions League and the, the Club World Cup. 
Um, and then we've seen already in the last, you know, that, that's why I don't quite understand it when people say, oh, Liverpool need a complete rebuild. And it's like, well, they don't need a complete rebuild. They're actually in the middle of a rebuild. And what we've seen this season is a squad of players and a management just having difficulties handling that that transition because Liverpool have already bought a new front line. We've seen that evolve, um, you know, with the signings of, you know, obviously Diaz coming in midway through last season and then, you know, uh, Nunes and then Gagpo. Um, and now this summer they need to go and go and buy a new midfield effectively. And in terms of those three players you mentioned, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's just common sense that their roles will change over time in terms of, um, you know, you have to evolve, you have to bring in, you know, younger, younger talent, um, as much to ease the burden on them as much as anything else. Because I think when, when you get to that last part of your career, it's just not realistic to think that you can perform absolutely to your peak game after game after game. And in in terms of the, you know, taking them as, as individuals, I'd, I'd say, you know, Jordan Henderson will be, what will he be? 33, I think, by the start of next season. You know, Liverpool have signed at least two, if not three midfielders this summer. Um, so he'll know he'll know that. I think I still think Henderson will have a massive role to play. But will he be starting games every week? Probably not. Um, Salah, I think, is a different case because I think with Salah, he's just set such ridiculously high standards that that I think... You know, it, what's a bad season for him is still a season that most attackers can only dream of. You know, he's we talk about him not being at his best this season, and he's not far off. You know, I think he's closing in on on thirty goals again in all comps. So that's it's uh, if he keeps delivering that, then I don't think anyone will have any issues with that. And and Van Dijk, I still think I, I don't go along with the idea that Van Dijk is is kind of you know some kind of spent force, which you see people trying to jump to conclusions and I think you know he's held his hands up and admitted he hasn't been at his best this season he probably played too much football I think he struggled with the the demands placed on him especially with the World Cup coming when it did um but I I still think after a decent break Van Dijk will or or be be absolutely pivotal to Liverpool again next season and obviously watching City now streaking clear at the the top of the league which which obviously felt slightly uh, inevitable, particularly as an Arsenal fan talking. The standard now is you're talking about ridiculously high standards. Like the standard is now ridiculously high from them. They've got a 50 goal a season striker, you know, probably a lot more than that by the time the season finishes. Two players for every position, still maintaining those extremely high standards of pressing and uh, and that kind of Guardiola um, philosophy. Um, Obviously, the long-term aim for Liverpool is to to get back to that where they were toe-to-toe and within a point of winning league titles. But do you think it's something that can be happened, that can happen by next season? Or do you think Liverpool fans will need to be patient and see, you know, this season as a bit of a nadir, despite the, uh, you know, the better finish that they're having, building blocks into next year and then potentially back in cities uh, echelons by you know the season after that. Yeah, I, I think I think so much hinges on what Liverpool do in the market this summer in terms of whether you've whether you've got that belief that they can be serious contenders again next season. <clears throat> I, I certainly see this season as a one-off in terms of just how they've fallen back into the the chasing pack. Um, you know, I don't you know even right down to 
you know, the way that preseason wasn't ideal and everything else. And, you know, there's now plans in place to ensure that the coming preseason will be very different and having the, the, the Europe-based training camp first and then the overseas commitments much later on in the, the preseason schedule. And so I think, you know, and a, you know, those key personnel getting a proper break this summer with, you know, the absence of a major tournament should should help them. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. The bar is crazy high in terms of getting back to competing with City. But, you know, it was something that Liverpool have done, you know, consistently for for so long. And, you know, it almost feels like one Premier League title was scant reward, really, for for what they produced over an extended period, you know, to miss out on the title twice by a by a solitary point, despite, you know, what, getting mid-90s in terms of points totals. But, um, but yeah, they're going to have to be clever because the, the reality is that they can't spend on the same scale as, as City. Um, but that's always been the case. You know, Liverpool have never, the, the success they've had is, isn't because they've outspent everyone else. It's because they found value. You know, you look at the, the players they brought in, um, the challenge is to try and, to, and replicate that. Um, you know, it's hard enough doing it once without, you know, trying to trying to live up to those those heights once again. So it's like, you know, can can Klopp go and juggle his re- resources this summer and and plug the gaps that are needed in that squad, which are you know two to three proper elite starting midfielders, probably another centre half, maybe even a, a backup goalkeeper if Quivine Kelleher does does move on. Um, and I think that's why. You know they recently made the decision to to kind of abandon their pursuit of Jude Bellingham for this summer. The fact that there was that realization that you know it's not just a case of one marquee signing lifts Liverpool back to being serious contenders for you know with with Manchester City that they need a lot more than that. So they you know they're going to have to spread their resources out. As Chelsea have found out to their detriment, uh, and very briefly before we let you go, uh, James, uh, will will Liverpool be the only side on Merseyside playing in the top flight next year? By the time this podcast dropped, they'll have played the relegation derby against Leicester City, and a lot of answers will have uh, will have been uh, um, revealed by then. Yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> I must admit, when I watched when I watched Everton fall to pieces against Newcastle last week. For the first time, really, I thought, well, you know, they they are going, they 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 are an absolute mess. But it's it's just so difficult to call at the minute because you know, there's other clubs down there that are in you know equally dire straits. You look at you look at Leeds United um, and what's going on with them. They they don't look like they're capable of pulling away. I think I think Southampton now um, are absolutely doomed so I think I think that that's one spot already sorted I can I can see Leeds dropping into it I mean I, I think I, I think I think it'll be Southampton I think it'll be Leeds and then I, I still think Leicester will have too much um I think I think they've got enough quality there to to survive so it's it's probably going to be a toss-up between Everton and Forest I think for that that final spot but I, I really wouldn't I wouldn't like to call it, and um, you know, I speak to a lot of Liverpool fans around the city, and you get a, you get a real cross section of opinions in terms of you get the Liverpool fans that that you know, obviously because of the nature of the rivalry would absolutely take great delight in Everton dropping down to the Championship, but then there's others who 
you know, they, they love those Derby days and the prospect mm. of, of mm. not having them next season would leave a, a big hole in the, in the calendar. But um, yeah, whatever happens with Everton in the next few weeks, you know, there, there's a hell of a job uh, what there to be done there because, you know, the, we talk about money and, you know, it's not been through a lack of money that Everton find themselves in the, in the, the absolute shambolic position they're in. It's just that they've absolutely squandered it on, on substandard talent and, um, been a lack of leadership right from the top with, with Mashiri, the owner. So, um, yeah, a, a big couple of weeks ahead on Merseyside. Yeah, absolutely. There is. And one thing's for sure, they'll be playing in the best stadium in the championship if they do drop down. Um, James Pierce uh, from The Athletic, thank you so much for joining us again on Box to Box, mate. For any football fan, let alone a Liverpool fan, that's a, uh, a masterclass in, in what's happened and, uh, and what's uh, going on uh, behind the scenes at Anfield. So uh, we're really grateful for your time, mate. Cheers, guys. Take care. James Pierce. Okay, stick around. We're going to wrap it up with a World Cup corner after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Oh, the bar's been raised high. Willem, World Cup corner. Um, James Pierce, fantastic chatting with him. Finally got him in uh, after this sort of Arsenal-centric season that we've been having so far. Great chatting to Trevor Thompson. What a great story uh, that is about the uh, the Anzac uh, Soccer Ashes Trophy. Um, I could listen to, to him talk all day. But I'm going to listen to you talk for uh, about 10 minutes now, Willem, or at least bits and pieces of that. Fire us away. Just another example of football in Australia having the most stakeholders that need to be appeased of any organisation in the history of the planet. James Johnson this week has written to the Matildas alumni, thanking them for their immense contribution to the game and apologising for any distress or neglect that they might have felt uh, in the lead up to the World Cup so far. Uh, Tracy Holmes, her podcast, The Ticket, uh, several Matildas spoke to her a couple of weeks ago expressing just those feelings. There was some consternation that they hadn't been involved uh, to any extent really in the, the 100 days announcement. Uh, but Johnson this week has written to them, indicated that it's been resolved uh, and an allotment of tickets edge has been secured for the, uh, for the Matildas knockout matches. Says this is our heartfelt way of recognising and appreciating your immense contribution to the game, while also promising more meaningful reunions, celebratory events and engaging activities. Well, this is a really crap reflection on Football Australia and where they're at because um, they know that they can get access to tickets for former players of the national team. In fact, in fact, it's negotiated into the collective bargaining agreement for the men's side of the program. Um, the fact that they didn't communicate with former Matildas um, about tickets until Tracy Holmes shamed them on the national uh, ABC platform is a very poor reflection on Football Australia and one that I think is a, a really significant one. You know, I, I'm just hugely disappointed and I'm a little bit distressed that people who've um, really done so many hard yards for Australian women's football were forgotten, uh, overlooked. Yeah, so I, I think James has uh, elo eloquently wrote a letter uh, after the horse has bolted. And, um, yeah, I'm really concerned about why this group of people were overlooked in the planning for the Women's World Cup, and I'm sure Rob would agree. Oh, absolutely. And, um, I, you know, I, I 
was, uh, as I mentioned, I think last week, uh, uh, on that uh, episode of uh, The Ticket, talking about some other issues related to the World Cup um, with Tracy. And uh, it, it is embarrassing. I mean, we, and we, to be fair, we've given head office at College Street lots of credit over the last few years and credit that they've earned and it is due for a lot of the commercial decisions. But this is, you know, your genuine own goal from central casting. How someone in uh, HQ didn't think that it was um, uh, uh, critical to invite a large representation of the Matildas alumni to uh, the 100-day countdown and um, and make sure that there was no doubt whatsoever that these pioneers were VIP guests um, at the at the World Cup, let alone ticket holders. Um, it was, um, yeah, it, it's just profoundly disappointing. So we hope at the very least we've all made clangers over the years um, and, uh, you know, we've got to put our hand up when it happens. Um, if we're guilty of them, we deal with them. Um, yeah, Ed, you, you mentioned the horse had bolted, but it's not too late. The World Cup hasn't started. They can uh, leave better memories than the ones that have been created so far. What is it, Edge? Not looking to, to find excuses, but is it just a blinkers on? We've got so much to do, just not thinking about these things. Is the is Football Australia actually not that big so that there aren't enough, you know, resources stretched? Are there not sort of people with the, you know, a, a historical bent or someone sort of bringing up the rear, if you like, making sure that these little things do get picked up in a, in a sort of fine tooth comb, if that makes sense? This is not uh, an item that's a fine tooth comb item. Football Australia is adequately resourced to care for the Matildas alumni, uh, people that have represented the Australian women's football uh, teams over the years. The fact that they weren't considered in uh, a ticket allocation is an oversight of epic proportions. It's nothing to do with we're too busy. It's all to do with doing your job. Fair enough. Well said. Edge, have you, uh, you were assigned a little bit of homework this week. Have you, have you brought an item to the agenda? Yeah, thanks for giving this uh, homework to me about uh, 45 minutes ago, Willem. But having said that, I have delivered. I'm not having to whinge or complain at all, Rob. Um, I just <laughs> no, it doesn't sound me. like it. Now, look at three players who are under pressure to make the Australian women's uh, football squad for the Women's World Cup. Um, not in any order. These players are all big names and they can have an impact for the Matildas at the World Cup, but they're all under pressure to make the squad. One is Larissa Crummer. Um, obviously, she had that horrendous broken leg, which she has recovered from and has got back. The fact that she's got back into the Matildas reckoning is an incredible achievement, but I think her form's been uh, underwhelming and she'll be under pressure. I thought the second player that's under pressure is a player that performed in the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France really well and was a major player in a very big win was Chloe Legazzo. She's not been able to get onto the field in any way during this uh, A-League women's competition. I think she's only played one or two games and she missed the grand final after trying to get up for that. Uh, she would be under enormous pressure to make the Women's World Cup squad, a player that would normally be in our starting lineup. And Kaya Simon, it's um, the first game at the Women's World Cup, the Australian Island game is 288 days after she ruptured her ACL. I understand she's giving herself an outside chance to get there, but you'd have to say that she was under pressure. So, Willem, there's three big names that are under pressure to prove their fitness and uh, capability to make it. 
in the Matilda squad for the Women's World Cup. I thought that was interesting, just an interesting time to reflect on those challenges. Okay, all right. Well done, Michael. That was outstanding response to your homework. The dog did need it, but you, uh, for a bloke who wasn't sounding like he was whinging, you did a very good job of a bloke who sounded like he was. Um, all right, mate, you're heading off to Bangkok shortly, and um, well, in fact, you're going to do it after stoppage time, so um, I won't say farewell to you just yet. Uh, looking forward to that discussion, but thanks. Uh, what a great show, guys, and another good one. And Trevor Thompson, what a treasure he is for Australian football, Rob. Excellent. And uh, Derek, thank you, mate. Um, until stoppage time. Thank you, gents. See you there. And Willem, thank you, mate. Nice uh, tidy work from you too. Thank you, Rob. See you next week for the main show. Make sure when you get the chance, please do subscribe to Box to Box, Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. Leave us a lovely rating while you're along the way, like all the others have done so before. Make sure you like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.